Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. I don't think we set out to have such interesting episodes, Colonel, but it seems like every time we get together, the situation gets just that much more interesting. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of current events that, uh, that play into uh, the subject matter that we're covering. Yeah, it seems like we were wanting to go through the historic Constitution as the framers drafted it in 1787 and ratified it by 1789. But instead... We've been focusing instead so much on the Constitution as it is playing out every day in the events of our nation. And we've seen the election. We've looked at the Electoral College and how that works. We've seen what safeguards are in place in case there is an election irregularity or fraud. We saw that there is ample evidence. There were plenty of irregularities this time, and yet the courts were not willing to address them, and the legislatures were not willing to address them. And if we're going to protect the Constitution, those to whom it is entrusted have to act to protect it. And the courts have the duty to interpret the Constitution, to decide cases under the Constitution, and they chose not to get involved. And consequently, a lot of the problems we're having today could have been prevented if the court had addressed these issues way back before the election when they were first asked to. And I'm a little uncomfortable saying that because normally I'm not one who wants judicial activism. I believe in judicial restraint. But in this occasion, I think they had a duty to act, and they could have prevented a whole constitutional cauldron of problems had they acted when the irregularities were first brought to their attention. We saw where the Constitution delegates to the state legislatures the authority to set up the means by which the electors are to be selected, and how even though various states and their legislatures had provided certain procedures for the election, how election officials, sometimes using COVID as an excuse, went beyond those procedures and allowed all sorts of things that the legislatures and the state constitutions had forbidden, and the court should have addressed that and said that that is an unconstitutional usurpation of legislative power, but they did not. And at the same time, when this power is delegated to the legislatures and the executives start violating what the legislature's procedures were, the legislatures should have done something about it. And that's not always that easy to do, but in several of these states, there was not only a Republican legislature, but also a Republican governor. And so the legislature could have been called in session, but they didn't, and they wouldn't, and so they didn't act. And so we come to the last alternative, and that was for people to challenge the results of the electoral vote when that electoral vote is announced. There on the floor of Congress, as the Constitution prescribes, on January 5th. And several courageous congressmen, led by Mo Brooks of Alabama, and several courageous senators, led by Josh Hawley of Missouri and Ted Cruz of Texas, several of them took their constitutional responsibility seriously and raised that on the floor. 
And on the floor, the majority of the legislators rejected their challenge. And now those who raised this challenge, and those who voted for the challenge, which included over 100 House members, they are now being pilloried and accused of sedition and acting irresponsibly and unconstitutionally, when in fact, they did what the Constitution required them to do. But anyway, the electoral vote was announced, and we had the terrible events of January 6th, and the events of January 6th led last week. Interesting, that's only two weeks ago, and yet it seems like history already, but last week it led the House of Representatives to engage in an effort to impeach the President of the United States, and they did so. And now, again, we know that impeaching somebody is not the same as removing them from office. Sometimes in state constitutions and in constitutions of private organization, impeachment means removal. In the U.S. Constitution, the procedure is divided between the House and the Senate, and when the House impeaches by a simple majority, that is sort of like an indictment. And they did impeach by a majority, I believe it was something like 232 to 197. They did so with no witnesses being called, with very little debate, and what little there was seemed to be very superficial. And anyway, they then took their vote. Now, around this time, here at the Foundation for Moral Law, we drafted a five-page letter that was circulated to just about every member of the House. I say just about because there are several's that the emails that we had for them bounced, but just about every member. And in that letter, we first of all said that an impeachment is utterly without factual basis and pointed out that whatever the events that took place there at the Capitol, these violent events that took place, that they began some 20 minutes before President Trump had even finished his speech. And that speech was a mile and a half away. And there is no way, therefore, that that speech could have incited them to do what they did. Not only that, but in the president's speech, he said, and I'm quoting, we have come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. That is not an incitement to insurrection. It's not an incitement to any kind of violence or any kind of illegal activity. And it seemed like it was a different crowd over there that engaged in the illegal activity. And it might have been a mixture of extremists on the right mixed in with Antifa and some others as well. And anyway, as soon as the president became aware that this is what they were doing, he issued a tweet in which he told all of his supporters to go home. Nevertheless, despite all of this, the House went ahead and, and impeached. And we brought all that out in our letter. And the letter got to some of them before they voted, some of them probably afterward. But we received messages from the staffs of three congressmen, congressmen who had voted to impeach. I believe they were all Democrats, as a matter of fact. And 
In fact, a couple of them that we got back were first angry, saying, this is all false. You can't distribute stuff like this. And our response was very simple and cool. I wasn't the one on the line, but the man who handled this was very cool and responded that, well, we believe our information is correct. Please check it out. And if you find anything is erroneous, please get back to us and let me know. He received three return calls in which they said, we apologize. Your information was correct. We didn't know any of this. Now, if they didn't know any of this, that means really they weren't paying attention to sixth grade civics class because most of this was pretty elementary. But anyway, one of them even said that he wished he could retract his vote. And fortunately, that probably can't be done. But point of being made of all of this is simply that this was a hasty action of impeachment. And now from here, it's going to go over to the Senate. And as I say, when the House impeaches, it is sort of like a grand jury indictment. But then the Senate will conduct a trial. And in that trial, they will decide whether the allegations made against the president are true or false, and uses the language convicted. And this has to be done by a two-thirds vote. And anyway, now that the president is no longer in office, I'm going to make the argument in a subsequent memo to them that the Senate no longer has jurisdiction over this. But we'll see what the Senate decides. Apparently, they're not going to act on this for some time yet. In fact, Speaker Pelosi, who is just in such a hurry to get all of this done, hasn't even delivered the articles of impeachment to the Senate yet, and they can't proceed until they get them. And some have said they're going to wait until Biden's first 100 days of legislative activity are finished. But anyway, after our break, let's talk about what the Senate is going to do. I, when, what you're describing in the way that this is being carried out, uh, I don't know. Colonel, it, 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 it almost sounds, it sounds less like an official government proceeding and, and more like uh, excommunication from a, a particular religion. <laughs> the, the way that, uh, I guess the way that this is being carried out by, by some of the members of, of uh, Congress. Anyway, Except even excommunications are usually done by careful procedures. They can get carried away too, but usually there are careful procedures there. This wasn't even an excommunication. It was a lynch mob. Okay. On that note, we'll pick up just the other side of these commercial messages. This is Constitution Classroom. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Want to dominate the stock market in 2021? Looking for higher profit potential? With the COVID vaccines, a shifting political landscape, and a new year, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. With Vantage Point, you don't have to. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how our technology can forecast market trends up to three days in advance with incredible accuracy. Text MONEY to 411411 to find explosive moves before they happen. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how. Make 2021 your year. Start predicting trends 72 hours in advance and maximize your gains. Text MONEY to 411411 and experience Vantage Point for free. Protect and grow your capital now. Don't wait. Text MONEY to 411411. Go to VantagePointSoftware.com for terms, conditions, and privacy policy. 
What can help you take advantage of today's low mortgage rates and save money? Rocket can. You could save hundreds of dollars every month by refinancing with Rocket Mortgage at today's near historic low rates. If your current rate is over 4%, with today's low rates, you could lower your payment by over $150 a month, saving thousands in interest every year. With a cash out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, you could consolidate and pay off high interest debt, tackle home improvements that could add value to your home, or even set aside cash for your child's future education. We've already helped over 1 million clients just like you reach their home financing goals this year alone. So remember this, what can give you the technology to refinance easily and save money? Rocket can. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. That's 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Savings based on quick loans, internal data, placing fees may apply. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing letter, license in all 50 states. Analysts can see your access.org number 330. You've heard me talking about MyPillow for three years, folks. It's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a MyPillow. You can do it, too. 60-day money-back guarantee, 10-year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two MyPillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1-800-951-8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Balance of nature is fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. Once again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And, uh, Colonel, I have to say, for all the drawn-out impeachment proceedings that we saw a little over, was it about a year ago, that uh, that uh, the, the impeachment of uh, President Trump took place, this last one, though, whew, I mean, there, there would have been a sonic boom. It was so quick. Well, to refute the idea that he incited this action, I would just ask this question. We know that President Trump is a pretty capable guy. We know that he is capable of organizing major projects and bringing them to fruition. That's been the story of his business life and story of his presidency as well. Question I would ask is, can anyone seriously believe that if President Trump had intended to stage a coup, that he would have staged one that was so sloppy and disorganized as what happened on January 6th? Give him a little credit. He certainly would have done a better job than that if he was trying to organize a coup. But as I say, now it goes over to the Senate. And here's what the Senate Constitution has to say about the Senate's role, and this is Article 1, Section 3. The Senate shall have power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Now, think about that one part there, when the president is tried, the chief justice shall preside. Notice there's a reason for that. Normally, the one who presides over the Senate is the vice president, but the framers foresaw that the vice president might have a conflict of interest here. On the one hand, he might 
be in league with the president and might be trying to protect the president. On the other hand, he might desire to be president himself and he might be thinking, if we can just get this president out of the way, then I'm the president. So either way, he's under pressures that a presiding officer shouldn't be under. And so the framers wisely provided that the chief justice would preside when the person on trial for impeachment is the president. And then again, the two-thirds requirement for an impeachment. We've had a couple of impeachments, three now, I guess, and Back in the 1860s, they tried to impeach Andrew Jackson, and they did impeach him, but they did not get the necessary two-thirds of the vote in the Senate to convict and then to possibly remove. We saw that when President Nixon was under fire over Watergate, that articles of impeachment were drawn, but before the impeachment proceedings got underway, President Nixon resigned. We saw that President Clinton was impeached by the House, a majority in the House, but that the Senate fell short of the necessary two-thirds to remove him. We saw then that President Trump was impeached, and again, the Senate did not convict. And now he has been impeached. And now it may go over to the Senate, but since he is no longer in office, do they have authority to do anything? Well, let's look to that question for a moment. First of all, I'd say it is doubtful that the Senate has any authority to proceed with the trial if the impeached person no longer holds office. Go back to 1797. The House had impeached a U.S. Senator, William Blunt, of Tennessee. However, before the Senate tried this case, he had already been expelled, pursuant to the Senate's jurisdiction to expel its members under Article 1, Section 5, and therefore the Senate dismissed the impeachment for a lack of jurisdiction. Several times we've had impeachment proceedings that have been started, and then the person left office, one of these, Judge Mark Delahaye in 1873, Judge English in 1926, Judge Kent in 1789, I'm, I'm sorry, Judge Kent in, in 2009, and in all of these, when the person left public office, the impeachment proceedings were dismissed. We do have one instance, and that is the instance of the Secretary of War, William Belknap, in 1876. He was being impeached, and just minutes before the House was to vote on the impeachment, he handed in his resignation. The House determined that he should not be allowed to evade impeachment by resigning, especially just before the vote like that, and so they went ahead and they voted to impeach him anyway. It went to the Senate. The Senate looked at the case, they decided we still do have jurisdiction to try this, and that is open to some question, but that's what they decided. But it fell short of the two-thirds to convict in the Senate, and as a result, we have no ruling from the Supreme Court. Now, we've had a couple of other instances, and these are all three federal judges, and which they've been barred from holding public office. One of these was Judge Humphreys in 1862, 
Another was Judge Archibald in 1913, and another was Judge Porteous in 2010. Those are the only three federal officials who have ever been barred from holding public office. You recall that according to the Constitution, the things that the Senate can do are, number one, remove the person from office, or number two, bar him from holding office. They can't remove Trump from office because he's no longer there. Can they bar him from office? Well, we don't have a precedent to say that they can. We do have these two instances, and in one of these, Judge Archibald, Judge Archibald, 1913, he was disqualified from future office, but that was by a vote of 39 to 35, not the two-thirds. So whether that is valid or not, we are unclear. And unclear because Judge Archibald never challenged this in the courts. Point is, in none of these do we have any Supreme Court ruling or any other court ruling as to whether or not the Senate can proceed after the person has left office. I'm thinking that if the Senate does ever, if the, if the court ever does hear such a case, which let's say if the Senate were to bar Trump, then if it goes to the Senate or if it goes to court, I'm thinking the court is going to say that the whole purpose of an impeachment proceeding, impeach is a prerequisite to removing from office and jurisdiction no longer exists. I'm thinking that is going to be the result. But I, I doubt it's going to get there because I doubt very much that they will ever get a two-thirds vote to do this. There are a couple of Republicans who have indicated that they would consider voting for impeachment. A Democrat, Senator Manchin of Ohio, has said that he would not favor impeachment. And so whether they'd even get a majority, let alone the two-thirds, majority is questionable, two-thirds seems to be extremely unlikely. But let me point out one thing else. And as we're moving toward the close of this section, I just point this out, that those who have been calling for impeachment and removal have been saying that it's necessary to safeguard our democracy. <laughs> now, we've talked before about the difference between a democracy and a republic, and we said that we are a republic, not a democracy. However, forgetting that point for just a moment, what do they want to do when they want to bar somebody from holding public office? Not only do they want to bar that person from running for office, but Brian, they want to bar you and me from voting for that person. So in the name of democracy, they want to bar us from voting for the candidate of our choice. That is the height of hypocrisy. That's pretty scary. I mean, it hasn't been that many years that we've been able to look at historical examples of what happens when someone says, you know, you're, it's, it's not enough that we disagree. You have to agree with me or your ideas are so dangerous we must do something to officially prevent them, make them illegal. I hope we don't get there. But I'm grateful. Well, I certainly do too. I'm grateful for watchdogs like yourself, though. We will take a quick break. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo, and we'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I appreciate the uh, the being brought up to speed on current events. We're ready to delve back into the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, and uh, the raising and funding of armies. By the way, a uh, pretty good one on display, you know, during Inauguration Day today. I don't know if that was intended, but there was sure an awful lot of uh, military personnel in and around Washington, D.C. Yes, there are supposed to be 20,000 guardsmen there, and I find it just insulting almost that we had a liberal Democrat congressman from Tennessee who expressed some concern. He said, you know, about 75% of these National Guardsmen probably voted for Trump, and I don't know if I can count on them to protect us if they try to stage a coup. Well, that's ridiculous that military people do follow orders, and I gather he just has no idea what a military force is all about. But as we get back into, and we, have, we haven't ever left the Constitution, of course, here, we've been talking about the way the Constitution has been playing out in these last few months here, ever since the November 3rd election. And it seems like every session we've been talking about different aspects of how the Electoral College works. I hope one result of this is that we now understand the electoral process better. And, but number two, I, I think we also see something of what the founding fathers were concerned about here, a peaceful transition of power. You know, this has been a problem ever since the ancient world. How do we transfer power when a ruler resigns or dies? And this has been one of the major issues that we've had to deal with in government. And for some of them, like the Egyptians, they made it very simple. The eldest son of the pharaoh is the next pharaoh. He may have an IQ in single digits, and he may be certifiably insane, but if he is the eldest son, he becomes the next pharaoh. Now, that led to a great deal of stability in Egypt. However, it probably also led to mediocrity, because... For most of history, Egypt has been a second-rate power, and many times these pharaohs probably were not the best qualified person to rule. And then you have countries like Persia, where the selection procedure was broader. And there in Persia, for example, you, the next king, after the king died, was to be of the royal family, but there might be quite a few different persons in that royal family that might contest for this. And that led to a great deal of instability. And there were a lot of assassinations, poisonings and the like, and many times bloody conflicts over who'd take over the throne. We saw in England where in the days before the Norman conquest of 1066, when it was Anglo-Saxon England, that once a king had died, then the Vitata Gamot, which was the predecessor to the parliament, would choose the successor. Now, it was understood that they chose the person generally from the royal family, and that having a bloodline where you had some direct blood tie to the last king, that that was probably the most important credential there was. But other things would come into play as well. But anyway, we chose this system, system by which we choose a president by electing electors 
who meet as an electoral college and cast their votes, which are presented to Congress. And with the exception of what we saw there, what I would call more of a riot than an insurrection a couple of weeks ago, we have to say that this, like other transfers of power for 230 years, has been and continues to be a peaceful transfer of power. And none of us have to concede that Joe Biden was legally elected president, but he is holding office, and some of us are going to be praying that he does hold office for the next four years. I doubt if there will be too many efforts to impeach Joe Biden, <laughs> because if we impeach Joe Biden, then the president becomes Kamala Harris. If Joe Biden is sad, Kamala Harris is scary. But anyway, let's go back to Article 1, Section 8, where we've been looking at the powers that we, the people, have delegated to Congress. And last time, we saw the power to declare war. We saw that that power to declare war is a power that has been very seldom exercised. And we saw that in this power to declare war, that only Congress can declare war. However, that doesn't mean that the has to be a formal declaration of war every time a shot is fired or one soldier is put into a situation of hostilities. In fact, we have not declared war since World War II. And most nations, when they go into a military conflict, do not declare war. With Korean conflict, the Vietnam conflict, Desert Storm, Afghanistan, we have not declared war. And some think those actions are all unconstitutional because we didn't declare war. But I don't think the framers would mean that we have to declare war every time we're involved in any kind of military hostilities. For example, if a nuclear attack were launched on the United States, by the time we discover the missiles coming our direction, we would have less than an hour to respond. We don't have time to call Congress together for a declaration of war before we respond. And so what Congress has done to try to clarify where the president's powers to act began and where the power of Congress to declare war leaves off, Congress has adopted what we call the War Powers Resolution. And this War Powers Resolution says that whenever the president is about to commit troops into hostilities or situations where hostilities are imminent, he must inform Congress of what he is doing. And then Congress can either declare war or they can approve the action in other ways. There is authorizing the president to do this and this, in which case he can do what they've authorized. If Congress does nothing or if Congress orders him to bring the troops back, then he must end the hostilities within 60 days of when he began them. However, that may not be possible immediately. Sometimes that may take some time. And so the War Powers Resolution also says that after that 60 days expires, he has 30 days to complete the withdrawal of the troops. So in other words, the president can commit troops for basically 90 days without some kind of authorization from Congress. But that's the power to declare war. But now we also read in Article 1, Section 8, that the Congress will have power to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money for that use shall be for a longer term 
than two years. Now let's consider a couple things about this power to raise and support armies. First of all, you'll notice different language here. Raise and support armies versus provide and maintain a navy. Why do we say raise and support for armies, but provide and maintain for navies? And why do we put in a two-year appropriation limit on armies, but no such appropriation limit for navies? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. One reason is that the Navy was recognized to be a more permanent force, and we need appropriations for a longer period of time to maintain a Navy. But secondly, with the Army, it was understood that we would not so much be relying on armies to defend us as we would reserve militias made up of the people, and they would be called up to defend the nation. It's pretty hard to just call up the militia to go down and man the battleships. And so a, ne a necessary longer appropriation for Navy than for raising and supporting armies. Now, another question might arise here. We see raising and supporting armies, but we don't see anything about the United States Air Force. We don't see anything about the Marines who were in existence way back in the 1700s. We don't see anything about the Coast Guard, anything about a merchant marine, anything about the public health service. And so I guess my answer is that when the term armies is used, it means non-naval forces in general. And no, even a strict instructionist like me would not say that the Air Force is unconstitutional. But this brings up something new. When we look to the accomplishments of President Trump, it may well be that 50 years from now, the accomplishment that he will remember for most is the creation of the U.S. Space Command or Space Force. Seems minor today. That might become major. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was one of the ones I was going to ask about as well. And and who knows? Maybe we'll be into uh, interdimensional travel at some point and have to, you know, have a branch of the military that covers that. We well, right now, the Space Force is going to be dealing with satellites and dealing a lot with cyber warfare as well. But. And hopefully inspiring some world-class science fiction. At least I can yes, hope. Yes, that's true. But. <laughs> okay, let's take a very quick break. We'll be back with our final segment of Constitution Classroom, just the other side of these messages. and pounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 
Hi, I'm Wade Alaroot. Recently, John and Chelsea Jubilee with Energized Health were guests on my show, sharing their breakthrough science of intercellular hydration. The results? People lose fat fast while still being able to eat many of the foods they love. You can too. Plus, supercharge your energy, boost your immune system, and dramatically increase your brain function. You'll look and feel years younger. It's all simple and natural without painful exercise. How do I know? Because I'm about a third of the way through my 88 days on the program, and I've already lost 25 pounds of fat. I'm now getting hydrated at the cellular level. But don't just take my word for it. Go to EnergizedHealth.com and check out hundreds of amazing testimonials. Right now, for the first time ever, Energized Health is offering a buy one, get one free special. Take advantage of this life-changing opportunity for you and someone you love. Buy one, get one free. Call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. Or go to EnergizedHealth.com. Two for one. That's EnergizedHealth.com. Do you have an idea for an invention or new product? Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Then call InventHelp now. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential and explains every step of the invention process. We create professional materials representing your idea and submit it to companies who are looking for new ideas. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We also offer services including 3D modeling and animation demonstrating your idea, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to show InventHelp client ideas to additional companies. Join the thousands of people just like you who chose InventHelp to pursue their idea. We are experienced. We are working for you. We are InventHelp. Call us for free information at 1-800-460-1663. That's 1-800-460-1663. Again, 1-800-460-1663. We are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about Article 1, Section 8, getting into um, getting into more of uh, the explanation of, uh, what did you say, the use of our military as well as the, the militia. By the way, these, right. mm-hmm. these are topics that I think people are going to be hearing more about in a current context. Um, I'm sure you heard that, uh, you know, with all the, the guard troops in uh, Washington, D.C., there was a very curious moment a couple of days ago where a lot of those troops were being personally vetted because it was feared some of them may hold, I don't know, unapproved ideas or something. They might have a anyway their loyalty. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. I don't I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that seemed unusual. Military has been concerned recently that there might be military members who might hold some extremist views and. Those could be extremist views on the far left or toward radical Islam or toward the far right as well. And it seems like most of their attention lately is directed toward those on the far right. And if we're talking about those for whom there is a danger of them engaging in insurrection, then obviously that's a legitimate concern. But if we're merely talking about suppressing viewpoints that some in power may not like, that could be very dangerous. However, we go on to read after raising and supporting armies and providing and maintaining a navy, that Congress has the power to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. And they make general rules for the governing of the armed forces, but the day-to-day regulations are set by the executive branch. First of all, by the president, and then the Department of Defense, and then the Department of the Air Force, and then from there on down to the localized commands and so on. But 
For example, military justice comes under what we call the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is adopted by Congress, but day-to-day -day procedures under the Uniform Code of Military Justice are conducted under what we call the Manual for Courts Martial, which is an administrative manual of administrative regulations. It has to be consistent with the Uniform Code of Military Justice. But again, governance of the armed forces is the power that is shared between the president and the legislature. And so we need to understand the legislature makes the general rules. The president makes the more specific rules and is responsible for carrying them out on a day-to-day -day basis. But now we come to another matter, and that is that Congress can provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. And so we need to ask the question then, what is this militia? We see militia referred to as well in the Second Amendment. Well, actually also before that in Article 2, Article 2 deals with the president. Section 2 says the, command, the president shall be the commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militias of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. So, as we said, the command over the Army and Navy is shared between the president and Congress. Command over the militias is shared between the Congress, the president, and the states. So then we again have the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. And the Second Amendment says, as the reason for the right to bear arms, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So we see throughout Article One, Article Two, and the Second Amendment references to the militia. So we need to ask then, what is the militia? Well, we have to go into ancient times here. And for example, we go back to the ancient Hebrews and the army among the Hebrews was called the people, and it consisted of all able-bodied male citizens, and they were required to serve. And we read, for example, in Deuteronomy that when the militia is called up and they're at commander's call and being inspected, the commanders will ask, how many of you are faint-hearted? And if you have any that are faint-hearted, then they're to be dismissed to go home. You don't want somebody like that serving in the trench next to you. If any one of you has just taken a wife, well, your mind is going to be on something other than warfare, and so you go home and take care of your wife, and there are other categories of those who are not to be included, but all able-bodied male citizens in Israel were called up by the tribes to constitute the militia. And fascinating book on the subject by two officials from the Israeli army, Chaim Herzog and Mordecai Geshon, it's titled Battles of the Bible, and it's by Greeno Books and published in 1997. Go back to English common law, the laws of Alfred the Great, adopted in 18, or rather in 890 AD, over a thousand years ago, required subjects to possess arms, not just to take care of themselves, but to come to the defense of the kingdom when called upon. Similar requirement in 1181 AD with the Aziz of Arms, it is called. Statute of Winchester in 1289 AD provided it is commanded 
that every man have in his house harness, that is armor, for, to keep the peace of the ancient disease, that is to say, every man between 15 years of age and 60th years of age shall be assessed and sworn to armor according to the quality of their lands and goods. Now in America, we see that the Virginia Bill of Rights in 1776 provides for a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms for the proper natural and safe defense of a free state. And Noah Webster, Noah Webster, who was a good friend of many of the founding fathers, and in fact dined with many of them in the evenings during the Constitutional Convention, but Webster in his American, American Dictionary in 1828 defines militia as the body of soldiers in a state enrolled for discipline, but not engaged in actual service except in emergencies as distinguished from regular troops whose sole occupation was war or military service. The militia of the country are the able-bodied men organized into companies, regiments, and brigades with officers of all grades and required by law to attend military exercises on certain days only, but at all other times left to pursue their usual occupations. And Black's Law Dictionary defines militia as the body of citizens in a state enrolled for discipline as a military force, but not engaged in actual service except in emergencies, as distinguished from regular troops or a regular army. And then you look to the United States Code, 10 United States Code, Section 311, where we talk about two kinds of militia. The militia, it says, consists of all able-bodied males at least 17 years of age, and except as provided in another section under 45 years of age, who are or who have made a declaration of intent to become citizens of the United States and a female citizens of the United States who are members of the National Guard. Then it talks about two classes of the militia. The classes are the organized militia, which consists of the National Guard and the Naval Militia, and two, the unorganized militia, which consists of members of the militia who are not members of the Guard or Naval Militia. In other words, all other able-bodied male citizens, 17 to 85, who are not in the Guard, constitute the unorganized militia. So the idea then that the militia consists of all able-bodied male citizens was generally understood to be the practice of the United States. Now, as we move into the 20th century, the Guard becomes known as the organized militia, and we find statutes being adopted in the early 1900s that provide federal aid to strengthen the militias, the Guard, and so on. The result of this is that the State Guards, or the National Guard today, is so federalized and so regulated by the federal government and funded by the federal government that it performs a very good function in the defense of the nation. But as far as being a defense of the state against abuses by the federal government, it's pretty well lost its usefulness there. And that's where state defense forces come in. About half the states have what they call a state guard or a state defense force, which is authorized by federal law and the state guard or state defense force cannot be called up by the federal government. It can only be called up by the governor of the state. And state guards commonly function today kind of as a reserve auxiliary to the National Guard. You might say the state guard is to the National Guard, much like the Army Reserve is to the Army. But 
the idea that the militia was not only to defend the nation against foreign invasion, but also to protect the state and its people from federal tyranny is very clear from the Federalist Papers. More about that next week. Okay, that is a topic that I'm anxious to hear more about because I think it's going to be a matter of current events by this time next week as well. Colonel, thank you so much. I look forward to our next conversation. 